Aristotle was born in the year 384 BCE in the town of Stagira, which is in modern-day Macedonia. He was born into a wealthy family and was educated at an early age. In terms of his personality, we don't know a lot. Unlike Socrates, who didn't care what people thought of his appearance, Aristotle was more self-conscious and wore rings on his fingers and cut his hair short, which back then was fashionable. Like Socrates, his overarching desire in life was for knowledge and truth. His goal in life was to increase the sum of all human knowledge. And so he went to the best place he could to further his studies, which happened to be Plato's Academy, located near Athens. The Academy, by the way, is named after the Greek, the Greek town Hikademy, which is where Plato's family owned the property. So that's where we get the word Academy and Academics from. When Aristotle moved into the Academy, he was able to observe the debates between Socrates and Plato and quickly learned to master the style of debating known as the dialectic. In fact, at that time, the dialectic was one and the same as formal logic. A dialectic works like this. The first person pre presents their thesis. So, for example, the thesis might be that the earth is flat. Then the opponent might rebut by providing an antithesis. They might say the earth cannot be flat because there's always a horizon at sea. Then the, th then the synthesis emerges, which might be the earth appears mostly flat, but must be curved in some ways. And so at that point, we've arrived at a conclusion that's more than the sum of its parts. And so the Socratic dialectic is both deductive and inductive in nature. Now, I should point out that, di that dialectics were, in fact, more freeform and heated than I am portraying it here. And the words thesis, antithesis, and synthesis were actually coined by the 19th century German philosopher George Hegel. But Hegel's words do a really good job of describing the, the structure of the Socratic dialogue, so that's why I'm using them here. Now, while the Academy was the most esteemed place to study in all of Greece, it was not the only place that you could get an education. Others, who came to be known as sophists, would teach similar modes of argument and market their teaching skills by going from town to town and challenging anyone to a debate, and they would even allow their opponent to choose whatever side they wanted to be on. And because the sophists were so skilled in rhetoric and debate, they could usually win any debate and in turn make very good money tutoring the wealthy pupils, basically the people that lost the arguments. And in fact, this is how many people moved up in society. It's actually also been said that the sophists were the original lawyers. Now, most people at that time could not tell the difference between a sophist and a philosopher, and they would even often refer to Socrates as a sophist. However, Socrates railed against this notion in two major ways. First, Socrates felt that education should be free and open and not about private tutoring, like what the sophists were doing. And secondly, Socrates felt very strongly that he and Plato's intentions were to seek truth, whereas he felt that the sophists' only intention was just to simply win an argument. We know so many people these days who are like that. Now, getting back to Aristotle, Aristotle was very much inspired by Socrates and Plato, and he very much internalized their way of thinking, as well as their distaste for the sophists. So he too did not like the sophists. And in 360 BCE, Aristotle wrote a dialogue on rhetoric called the Grillus, which, in which he writes, quote, the orator should not excite the passions through fine language, 
but should instead appeal to reason through fine argument, end quote. So what Aristotle wanted to do then was to turn the dialectic back at itself and to break it down to its essential parts. And this work would result in Aristotle's formulation of what he called, and is still known as, the syllogism. And that's what sits at the core of his work on analytics, um, in, in, in a book in particular called Prior Analytics. Now, I've already mentioned a syllogism near the beginning of this podcast involving bears, and I'll give you another example in a moment. But first, I want to clearly explain what the syllogism is. So you can think of a syllogism as a self-contained statement of truth that may or may not be intuitive. Syllogisms follow this general structure. It starts with a major premise, which is similar to Socrates' thesis, and then it's followed by a minor premise, which is similar to Socrates' antithesis. And then from there, the combination of major and minor premises, we can draw a conclusion, which is similar to Socrates' synthesis. But the critical piece here, the secret sauce that ties the syllogism together is what Aristotle refers to as the middle term. And this is the term, the set of words, if you will, that links together the major and minor premises, but it's left out of the conclusion. Let me give you another example of a syllogism to illustrate what I mean by this. So let's start with the um, quote, in the province of Ontario, Canada, insurance companies will only increase premiums if the driver was at fault in the accident based on the province of Ontario's fault determination rules. So that, what I just read to you, uh, is the major premise. So now I'm going to read to you the minor premise. Bob is a terrible Ontario licensed driver who was in an accident, and it was determined through Ontario's fault determination rules that Bob was not at fault. End quote. So that's that's um, the minor premise. So how we link the two propositions is we go looking for the middle term, which is supposed to be found in both of them. And in the case, uh, in this case, we look, the middle term is the fact that Bob was not at fault. So that is in both the major premise, that statement that Bob was, you know, if you're not at fault, you don't have rising premiums. That's in the major premise and not being at fault the fact that Bob was not at fault is in the minor premise. So everything else is really just noise. It's only the only thing that matters is if, if Bob was at fault here. And so now we get to the conclusion. We can say, quote, therefore Bob's premiums, insurance premiums will not go up, even though, and this is incidental, Bob is a terrible driver. So notice that we in our conclusion, we we didn't mention the the fact that Bob was at fault or anything about that. All we do is we just basically give you the answer, which is all Bob cares about is whether his premiums go up or not. Now I picked this particular example because it shows that Aristotle and shows what Aristotle and other philosophers loved so much about the syllogism is that it can often reveal uh, fascinating surprises. And in the case of Bob, if you were to know this guy, you would definitely think he would be at fault in the accident and his premiums ought to go up, but that, and that might be the case. Um, but even as a friend, you, you know, you think that, um, you know, he's such a terrible driver. Like you hear about him having an accident, like you, you definitely think his premiums should go up, but legally speaking, because the fault determination rules are so precise in their definitions, it's possible to be a bad driver and to get into an accident and not be the one at fault and therefore 
not to pay more premiums. Now, as a little bit of a side note about um, Ontario policy around insurance, this is called the no-fault insurance policy. Um, some people protest the state of affairs, but we actually know empirically that um, it, it results in average, on average, lower cost outcomes for the majority of citizens of Ontario. And what we had before was another system called tort law, where every accident potentially could tie up the courts for huge amounts of time. So, you know, as bizarre as it may sound, this this no fault policy actually is saving everyone money. Okay, so that put that digression back. Getting back to um, what we're talking about here with uh, analytics and syllogisms, this is really what's kind of magical about syllogisms is that they reveal truths that might otherwise be buried under emotion. And this is what Aristotle really, really liked about and was so fascinated about with syllogisms. But I must point out to you that it all really depends on precise definitions, especially around the middle term. And of course, here in Ontario, when it comes to an accident um, being at fault, it's an extremely precisely defined term. And this is something that's just sort of routinely tested in court. So what Aristotle essentially did was he took the Socratic dialogue, those arguments between Socrates and Plato, stripped away all the noise and codified the underlying signals. And all of this was written down in the book Prior Analytics, which I, I mentioned um, briefly earlier. Now, if you read Prior Analytics, Aristotle even made it clear that his techniques can be used combatively. And it's here that we can recognize the relationship between logic and litigation or analytics and litigation. And on that note, I want to read to you an excerpt from prior analytics. Now, what this passage clearly shows is that Aristotle's syllogisms can be weaponized in argument by playing games with the syllogism's middle term so as to confuse the opponent. And it is likely that Aristotle observed sophists doing just this. But before I read you this, I should warn you that this might be a bit hard to follow. So don't worry if you find it confusing. I know that I did the first time I read it. I mainly just want to give you a sense of how Aristotle wrote, and I'll give you an example afterwards so it'll all make a little bit more sense. So here we go. This is part 19 of book two of Prior Analytics by Aristotle. Quote, In order to avoid having a syllogism drawn against us, we must take care, whenever an opponent asks us to admit the reason without the conclusions, not to grant him the same term twice over in his premises, since we know that a syllogism cannot be drawn without a middle term. And that term, which is stated more than once, is the middle. How we ought to watch the middle in reference to each conclusion is evident from our knowing what kind of thesis is proved in each figure. This will not escape us since we know how we are maintaining the argument. End quote. And then Aristotle then goes on to give advice on how to knock your opponent on their back heels by concealing the middle term and emphasizing the differences between the major and minor propositions kind of like what I did in my example with Bob being a bad driver. And Aristotle writes, quote, That which we urge men to beware of in their admissions, they ought an attack to try to conceal. This will be possible first if instead of drawing the conclusions of preliminary syllogisms, they take the necessary premises and leave the conclusions in the dark. Secondly, if instead of inviting assent to propositions which are closely connected, they take as far as possible those that are not connected by middle terms. End quote. Now, going back to our example with Bob, if Bob were in court, now he wouldn't be because we don't have tort law, but let's say he was. If Bob were in court and he was trying to sue the person who rear-ended him, Bob's lawyer would be appealing to the middle term, the connection between the fault determination rules and Bob's 
uh, actions, or I should say the defendant's actions, the, the person who rear-ended Bob. But the defendant's lawyer, the person who rear-ended Bob, would be instead uh, emphasizing that Bob is just a terrible driver, and he might even be able to find some of Bob's friends and acquaintances as witnesses to further uh, make his case. Now, if I was a naive journey, jury, sorry, I might be sympathetic to the defendant's argument. For like, if I heard many, many stories about how terrible driver Bob was, I might be, you know, ruling on the side of the defendant and against Bob. But a judge, on the other hand, would surely be laser focused on that middle term and rule in favor of Bob. So that that's exactly how the games um, are played with this this middle term. Now, at this point, I should explain how the book Prior Analytics fits into Aristotle's um, bigger picture. Now, Prior Analytics is, in fact, book three of a collection of six books, which together are known as Organon. And Organon is the Greek word for the tool. In fact, these books were so revered that they were seen as existing above and outside of philosophy itself. Excuse me. In other words, they were the tool of philosophy as most people were concerned uh, up to the early 20th century. So I'm just going to briefly, uh, and by the way, we a later um, episode in this podcast series, I'll, I'm going to de- describe why that all sort of ended in the 20th century, why it no longer is the tool. And it is merely a tool now, as opposed to the tool. So I'm just going to briefly list and summarize each of the books of, um, and there, as I mentioned earlier, there's six books in the Organon. So I'm just going to go over all these six books, just so you get a sense of, again, how Aristotle was thinking about this. So the first book is called Categories, and this is where Aristotle describes how to precisely categorize knowledge. And by the way, Aristotle also invented uh, biology, uh, which... It's pretty epic if you think about it. So categorizing knowledge has, you know, he, he was already big into categorizing knowledge because of his uh, biology experience. Uh, the second book is called On Interpretation, and that describes how we can be more precise in parsing out na- natural language and how words and terms should be defined. And it is in On Interpretation that Aristotle lays out what later logicians would re- refer to as the four standard forms of categorical proposition. And this is something that we'll return to later in this podcast when we get around to discussing Indian logic. Okay, third, we have Prior Analytics. This is the book we've already talked about. And this is the book that introduces the syllogism. So I don't really need to explain Prior Analytics anymore. It's, 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 It's probably the most important of the six books. Now, fourth, we have posterior analytics, which was written in an entirely different style from prior analytics. And posterior analytics describes ways in which we can come up with new um, axioms uh, inductively, new like our, our new value points, if you will. So this is um, a book about all inductive, inductive reasoning. However, unlike deductive reasoning, there can be no formula or algorithm. And most importantly, Aristotle makes it clear that one's own senses are the highest order of knowledge and should be taken above any logical argument. In other words, Aristotle was actually a staunch empiricist, like a scientist, you could say. And this, you might say, is where the art, or I would say the heart of analytics lies. 
Unfortunately, there is a great irony, which I'll discuss later, and that is Aristotle was misunderstood through history, and he was thought of as being someone who only cared about deductive reason and was anti-empirical, but in fact, it's quite the opposite. He's arguably the first empiricist. Um, But, you know, that's, again, a topic we'll come back to later in this podcast. So moving on to the fifth book, and the fifth book in the Organ is called Sophistical Refutations which is essentially just a checklist of 13 common logical fallacies, sort of like tricks that people like sophists would use to fool their opponent. So the first six fallacies deal with ambiguities and how we deal with language. And then the other seven fallacies um, cover fallacies that you'd easily recognize today. And actually, it's a bit eerie to see how common they still are. Um, so, for example, we have the false cause fallacy, which we know uh, today we call it, you know, we refer to that as causation does not equal correlation. Another called secundum quid means you cannot assume that because something is true in some cases that, that, that it will be true in all cases. And one fallacy that I see quite often is called the complex question fallacy, where a question is constructed in a complex way to include many conditions so as to fool the opponent into agreeing to things that they didn't really sign up for. So sophistical refutations, what it teaches us today, apart from how to spot common logical fallacies, is that the games that people play with logic have not changed one iota in over 2,000 years. And later in this podcast, we're going to talk about... um, macroeconomics and um, uh, Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek and essentially how uh, there was a sort of um, a movement that uh, unseated empirical thinking in economics and replaced it with ideological thinking and it very much came about through uh, this kind of logical trickery that was that Aristotle documented in sophistical refutation so it is still a very relevant um, topic in, in my view now, finally, we have book six, which is called Topics, and that comes from the word topos, which means form of argument. And Topics is really, you can think of it as like the handbook for the organon, and it, it essentially just ties all the other five books together. Now, there's one last book I need to mention to you um, before I, I distill all this for you. And that book, and it's outside of the organon, uh, and it's, it's written by Aristotle, and it's called Rhetoric. And rhetoric is all about the art of persuasion. And in Aristotle's view, persuasion was a three-legged stool. So in order to persuade somebody, in Aristotle's view, you needed to appeal to three things. First, you needed to appeal to the person's sense of reason, or logos, as, as it was known. And then you needed to appeal to the person's sense of moral character, or ethos, as it was known by the Greeks. And thirdly, you needed to appeal to the person's emotions or pathos, as it was known by the Greeks. Now, these rules, again, to this day, haven't really changed. And you can see that you can see this every time a country wants to make war and it needs to persuade its citizenry. citizenry, It always sort of trots out these three basic arguments, which go something like this. One, logically, we need to attack the enemy because if we do not, they will attack us. So that's your logos. And then two, we are morally superior to the enemy because we have the following things that they, they, we do the following things that they do not. So 
that's appealing to our uh, ethos. And then third, you'll usually get um, something that's going to stir you up emotionally. So the person trying to persuade you to go to war will, will show you like a video of usually some innocent person or people being killed and, you know, something that's really going to outrage you. So I'm sorry to use that, that this, this, this is an example of how Aristotle's rhetoric works, but it is actually the most clear cut use of logos ethos and pathos. And it's just one that we, we see quite, um, on a fairly regular basis. Now, putting this all together, Aristotle saw analytics and rhetoric working together in this sort of two-phased approach. So phase one, in, in his view, you'd have philosophers debate some kind of a question and then arrive at a conclusion. And in phase two, an orator would then persuade the audience of that conclusion. So for example, let's say that the philosophers had to figure out what to do about all the debt so many Athenians found themselves in, which by the way, was a real problem at the time. And the philosophers would debate one another through what Aristotle called dialectic syllogisms. And then this would ensure that they're scrutinizing all sides of the question. So once a conclusion is reached, then the philosophers would work with the orator to complete phase two, which was focused on persuasion. So let's say, for example, that the philosophers come to the conclusion that the best outcome for Athenian citizens would be to not have debt relief, but instead limit interest to 20% um, of the principal per annum. And, or maybe, maybe actually should be like 10%. So the orator who's skilled in rhetoric might take this conclusion and deliver the following speech, which I just, I just made up the speech. It's not a real speech. Quote, citizens of Athens, debt is a huge problem, and we are suffering in what feels like a form of slavery. Something needs to be done about this. That notwithstanding, it would be catastrophic for us to force entire debt relief. While we understand that thousands of poor city folk feel like they're being preyed upon by vultures, we believe that massive debt relief would in turn lead to a collapse in maritime investment. We depend on this maritime investment to support maritime expeditions, which in turn keep the barbarians from attacking us. We are enlightened Athenians and Grecians who are struggling right now, but we will get through this episode and repay our debts with the help of the gods. Now, I recently heard of an attack of our, uh, on our Ionian friends in the east by the barbarians, and those barbarians were nasty indeed. So in the name of goodness and reason, we should not support wide-scale debt relief but we do need better rules in place to protect the vulnerable. And so we propose that a law be passed to limit interest rates to 10%. And this, we believe, will provide for ourselves and for our children. Thank you. And that's the end of the speech. So to sum up, Aristotle had developed what is still to this day the formula for how we do analytics and what would later be known as, at least by the Catholic Church, the Psalm of Truth. But he showed us how to take logical logic and made it persuasive as well. Now, before I explain to you how the civilizations of China and India formulated and thought about logic, there's a key point that I need to make. Now, I mentioned earlier that a prerequisite for being able to formulate analytical thinking was conscious reflection, which can come in the form of basic writing or can come in other forms. And there is a second key ingredient for making analytics possible that is what I will refer to here on as democratic debate. 
And in order for democratic debate to be truly democratic, the participants must live in what I like to call a liberty bubble. And a liberty bubble is essentially a safe space for participants to speak their mind without fear of censorship or retribution. Now, while I was doing my research, I noticed that throughout history, liberty bubbles fall on a spectrum. Now, all liberty bubbles are constrained in some way as to what can be debated and what is not up for debate. But it is the extreme liberty bubble that Aristotle, uh, Aristotle's thinking was forged in, that is to say, in the academy. That in hindsight, it seems as, as unlikely as the existence of life on Earth. And in fact, if you think you live in a liberty bubble uh, with the same freedom of Aristotle, you probably don't. Because unless you're like a tenured professor or you don't really have any one to report to, like, like I would even say you have to be unemployed almost. You don't really have the same level, um, level of freedom to pursue whatever kind of argument you want as much as Aristotle did. And let me, let me clarify what I, what I mean by that. It really kind of comes down to, can you attack the power structure above you? That, that's really kind of the, the measure of freedom that I'm talking about here. And, and Aristotle really must have felt super free because um, he openly argued against Plato's core ideas, uh, including essentialism. And, and by the way, Plato's, essentialism, Plato's idea around what's known as essentialism says that everything in the world, including animals and furniture, has some kind of an essential purpose. So this is an idea that, that um, Aristotle didn't totally buy into, although he had a different concept called realism, which is ironically very similar. But uh, Aristotle really just tore apart um, essentialism and, and, and right in front of Plato, right in public, and no qualms about this. And, and Plato tolerated it. Now, mind you, Plato was a pretty tough guy. So, uh, you know, he had a pretty, um, pretty, he was a pretty confident person himself. So he could take it. But, but still, Aristotle was given this nickname, um, and the nickname was called the foal. And a foal is the word for, for like a, a child or a baby horse. And that's because foals are child horses were known to regularly kick their mothers. And I think that's actually an interesting analogy because it really is kind of like, um, you know, if you think about the, the, the most natural Liberty bubble, it's really just your family. Like you can, you can get away with attacking your parents and your siblings and, and live to see another day. But you try attacking your boss in the same way, you'd probably get fired. So I give Plato a lot of credit here for taking Aristotle's criticisms in stride. And once again, this raises the question of how do we get to these, these liberty bubbles? How do we get to these extreme states of liberty? Um, and in other words, how do we get to our eponymous cradle of analytics? And in order to answer this question, I need to take a moment to explain the Greek backstory and how the liberal arts fits into classical antiquity. So the first thing you have to, to, to note and understand is Greece's geography. And it's essentially made up of these naturally protected islands and peninsulas and bays in the eastern Mediterranean. And the Mediterranean itself, which was known as the sea in the middle of the earth, is ideal for both trade and for security. And in the same way that the savannas of Africa created ideal conditions for intelligent competition between humans and animals, allowing for things like language and intelligence to evolve, 
the Mediterranean um, was and still is an ideal arena for diverse economic competition. Now, to paint a picture for you, if you are an adventurous person living in the Mediterranean in the first millennium BCE, and you were part of a maritime trade expedition, you might start at the Nile River Delta in, let's say, March or April. That was the beginning of sailing season. And then you'd use the natural currents, which in the Mediterranean would flow counterclockwise to take you up the coast of the Levant, which is Israel and Lebanon. And then from there, you go across to Cyprus. And then you go along the southern coast of Turkey to the Cyclades Islands. And then maybe you'd um, go on to the island of Crete. And at this point, you could use the winds to head back down to the North African coast where you could pick up the current again to take you back to the Nile River Delta, where you'd arrive by the end of the sailing season around September or October. And since there weren't really any compasses, uh, in order to get across the distances in the, in the open sea, people would essentially just dead reckon from one island to another. Uh, but this also meant that you could get blown off course pretty easily and end up in some strange island. And then, you know, that could lead to all sorts of uh, possibilities um, on what could happen on that strange island um, that I'll, I'll just leave you to ponder. So that's kind of the uh, Mediterranean ge geography in a nutshell. And I got to say, like, um, it sounds pretty fun, but um, I'll also point out the fact that the Greeks were constantly at war with the Persians whom they ironically refer to as the barbarians because they thought their language sounded like they were saying the words ba 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 all the time. Now, the irony of course is that the Persians were you know as civilized if not more civilized than the Greeks. Um, and you know so that, that I mean this made them a, 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 an enemy that was I mean they were much more powerful and and and, and organized than the Greeks were at this time. And this really meant that the Greeks had a very strong incentive to remain unified in face of the, the Persians. Now, normally, when there's a common enemy, a strong man would take over and you'd be just stuck with another despot. However, the Greeks also were wise to the abuses of power that came from despotism. And in fact, the word tyrant was pretty much the same word for king in Greece. The only distinction between a tyrant and a king was a tyrant was somebody who seized power, whereas a king was born into power and was thus, thus less likely to be erratic. Or at least that's the idea. So a balance was struck when the various Greek polystates formed a military alliance that was known as the Hellenic League. And because of the combined power, the, Gre the Greeks were able to stand up and defend themselves against the Persians. Now, if you've seen that movie, The 300, uh, about the, the the battle of the Thermopylae, where the 300 Spartan Greeks were able to resist a Persian invasion, you'll know what I'm talking about. So, so battles like this allowed the Greeks to strike a peace deal with the Persians, and by 450 BCE, they struck a deal known as the Peace of Callias with the Persians. And in fact, by 450 BCE, the Hellenic League actually split into two leagues over differences regarding the Ionian Greeks on the eastern part of the Mediterranean and what is now part of Turkey. And, um, you know, one, uh, basically the eastern Greeks like based in Athens, you know, were happy to, to include those as, as other Greeks that they wanted to defend, whereas the more western Spartans 
didn't really feel it made sense. So the Delian League um, is the first league I mentioned there, and they were led by Athens. And um, the second league alliance was called the Peloponnesian League, and that was led by Sparta. So the Spartan-led Peloponnesian League really didn't have that much interest in the liberal arts. And they were only really interested in the war arts. And they actually didn't really even care for literacy for that part. They were not even into to reading and writing. On the other hand, the Athens-led Delian League, which was composed of around 150 polis city-states, began to take on a very different character from the Peloponnesian League, mainly because, again, they were... Uh, they really embraced the liberal arts. And the Athenians, they also, the other thing about the Athenians is they saw war as this sort of uh, tit-for-tat, zero-sum game, which typically led to tyrant seizing power. And this mindset was very much captured in Homer's um, The Iliad, which we'll come back to later. So this there's now this sort of opening for, for liberalism to emerge and thr- thrive. Um, but that's just the start. The Greeks, by the way, were not the only ones who were prosperous in the Mediterranean. Uh, to start, you have the Egyptians to the south, who were probably the, you know one of the original powers in the Mediterranean. And Egypt had always been a regional superpower and were very prosperous. And they had traditionally been essentially a land-based power in the Sinai and the Levant region. And I should also point out that the Greeks picked up huge chunks of their knowledge on astronomy and mathematics from the Egyptians, who in turn learned this from the Babylonians. And a former mayor of Athens, Solon, actually famously once said that, quote, we stole all our knowledge from the Egyptians, end quote. And we actually know, for example, that the Pythagoras' theorem was discovered by the Babylonians and may have been passed off. Um, to the Egyptians, and that's where Pythagoras may have learned it from. The second big group operating in the Mediterranean were the Etruscans, who were based out of northern Italy, and this is where the word Tuscany comes from, or the region of Tuscany in Italy. And the Etruscans, of course, would later merge with the Latins to become the Roman Kingdom, and then the Roman Republic, and ultimately the Roman Empire, but that would all happen much later. And at the time, the Etruscans were less of a maritime power than the Greeks, and they only controlled a small part of the Mediterranean near southern France uh, and northern Italy. And now it brings us to the third and final big group, who were the Phoenicians, named after the famous purple dye they produced from muric snail mucus, and they also liked to trade luxury goods. And this is why purple is associated with royalty. Now, the Phoenicians were based in present-day Lebanon in cities like Tyre and Sidon and Biblios, but due to competition with the Greeks, they gravitated towards the western Mediterranean, uh, using, um, basing themselves in Carthage, which is in modern-day Tunisia. And that was Carthage that later became their base. Now, the, the Phoenicians really punched way above their weight, and they were brilliant in their own right. They invented the alphabet, after all. But the Phoenicians were actually a relatively small population compared to the Greeks, maybe a tenth of the size. So they didn't really have the luxury of building out larger cosmopolitan cities like the Greeks did. And so they were very focused on building out commerce and trade and were able to use the high quality timber from Lebanon to trade as an economic engine, which allowed them to bootstrap into luxury goods like uh, purple dye. And they also um, manufactured and sold papyrus. Just like paper, you could say. 
So to sum up, the Greeks controlled the Eastern Mediterranean, the Phoenicians controlled the Western Mediterranean, the Etruscans controlled a small part of the Middle North Mediterranean, and the Egyptians were a major trading partner for everyone. And all of these groups were literate and had advanced societies. And there were also these other smaller cultures that operated um, often as pirates, like the Sardinians and the Sheridans. Uh, but they never developed their culture to the same extent as the big groups that I just mentioned. There's also another group called the Ilians, too, I've, I forgot to mention. Now, with all of the, the cultural competition, the Greeks wanted to further distinguish themselves from the Egyptians, Etruscans, and Phoenicians. And so the liberal arts was sort of a great outlet for this expression. And as Plato once said, quote, the Greeks are more interested in the pursuit of wisdom than the pursuit of money, end quote. So um, that's all well and fine, but who is actually paying for these liberal arts? So again, it's, you know, before I answer that, that second question, I just want to, you know, point out that this is a big part of the, this was a big part of the Greek identity was this, it comes back to this, this notion of a kind of a moral superiority. Like if you're, have a society based on wisdom and knowledge, how can that not be better than the money grubbers, you know, surrounding you? Um, so again, like there, it wasn't like there were, in other, there, there were other societies next door who also loved the liberal arts. Like, no, that was their shtick. This is, this is how they could really, um, you know, make themselves, um, identify themselves in a, in a very positive way. So, so again, who's like, Where's the money coming from? How do you pay for liberal arts? It's not cheap. Well, fortunately, there's still enough Greeks who, like the Phoenicians, were also in the pursuit of money. Because, <laughs> you know, if there weren't, they, there would be nobody to pay for this. And because this, the Greek states had a sophisticated, leveraged, credit-based economy with interest, there was plenty of wealthy patrons, um, people like Hermia, Hermaeus, and Adernus, who could bankroll institutions like Aristotle's Lyceum School. And Aristotle started that after he left the academy. Even the, Pel even the Peloponnesian War that broke out between Sparta and Athens was not enough to stop interest in the liberal arts. And while I was researching Aristotle, I came across a possibly apocryphal story about a Corinthian farmer who, was, um, who after reading Plato's Gorgia, decided to sell his farm and his vines, and he rushed off with all of his money to spend the rest of his life at Plato's Academy, quote, mortgaging his soul to Plato, end quote. And, and, and I don't know if he was crazy or if he was wise. I mean, I think he was probably just running away from his family, um, but I don't know. But it's fun to think about what, what might have happened to him. But it gives you kind of a sense of like how passionate people were about the liberal arts. Now, there's one last thing I, I'll mention here, and as a possible factor in terms of some of the breakthroughs the, the Greeks may have had. And I actually don't believe this made any significant difference, but I feel I need to mention this because I'm sure somebody else will bring this up, so I might as well nip it in the bud. As I mentioned here, logic and analytics, as we currently understand in the West, was codified in Greece by Aristotle. Now, not to get ahead of myself here, but logic was also independently codified in India, and we can even find syllogisms going back to the Vedic oral period, which we'll explore later in this episode, or actually later in the series, I should say. Now, an interesting coincidence between the Greek philosophers and the Vedics is that they both appear to have partook in some kind of a, a psychedelic potion. 
Now, we don't really know this for sure, but the, the Vedic sages in India drank a potion that they called Soma, which some historians and anthropologists believe was based on psilocybin mushrooms. And the Greek elites, who included philosophers like Aristotle, consumed a potion known as kaikion, which they would take twice a year during a secret religious ceremony in honor, in honor of the goddess Demeter, which was, and the ceremony was known as the Eleusinian Mysteries. Now, some researchers believe there's evidence that kaikion contained an ergot, which contained a mild form of LSD, known as LSD-7. Others have speculated that it was just alcohol, or perhaps it was just opiates. Now, the, by the way, the, the Greeks weren't the only ones to do these types of ceremonies. There were similar ceremonies in uh, Egypt and, and even before that in Mesopotamia. Um, but this is what Aristotle had to say of the Eleusinian Mysteries. Right? He, he says, quote, The initiates were to suffer, to feel, to experience certain impressions and moods. They were not to learn anything. End quote. So to sum up the main reasons why Aristotle was able to operate so freely in this liberty bubble, the main points are, first, the use of alliances as opposed to despotic leader to repel the Persian enemy, so a balance was struck by creating an opening for liberty. Um, I would also say that the geography very much uh, protected them uh, from the Persians as well. The, the sort of rockiness of the eastern Mediterranean uh, was another reason that they were able to sort of maintain these, these independent city-states. It was a very defensible region. Okay, point number two, the Greeks embraced the liberal arts as a way of asserting moral superiority over the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, the Etruscans, the Persians, and pretty much everyone else. In fact, it was the sense of moral superiority that led Alexander III of Macedon, or Alexander the Great, to believe that he was acting morally when he embarked on his mission to well, basically take over the world. And we're going to come back to that story in part two of this episode, which will come out um, a little bit later in, 2000, later in 2019. Point number three, um, by the 4th century BCE, the Greeks had an advanced leveraged credit-based economy that you know, had interest and all that that allowed for wealthy patrons to pay for places like the Academy and the Lyceum and all of those sophists. Um, so that, those are the three, I think, main points to understand about Aristotle and how he was able to sort of operate in this liberty bubble and, and work diligently away on, on philosophy. Now, I want to quickly recap two bigger points I've made so far. And firstly, in order to have analytics to work, you must have at a bare minimum the ability to perform conscious reflection and secondly, you must have the ability to have a democratic debate with maximum freedom. Okay, so knowing all of this, um, there was knowing all this, there was also conscious reflection and democratic debate going on in both India and China at the time of Aristotle, and this did lead to the development of logic within those respective civilizations. So the question at this juncture is, why didn't logic develop as the dominant philosophical tool in India and China as it did in Greece? So we'll start with China in the 5th century BCE, 
right around the same time that Socrates was in his prime. So even slightly before Aristotle's time, that's when logic got its start in China. So in the next episode, we will uh, discuss uh, China, the hist- a little bit about the history of China and how analytical philosophy got its start in China and, and where it ultimately uh, ended up.